Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22 as we continue our series on Genesis. I read of a family that planned a service at their home for their baby to be christened in their case. We don't christen, we baptize, but in this case it was a christening. And uh, people came, all the guests arrived, and someone after a while said, where's the baby? They got to looking around and someone said, I remember when I put my coat on the bed that uh, there was a baby there. They went in and uh, the baby was under everybody's coat and it smothered to death. I wonder if that sort of happens uh, to Christ in Christmas time. That under the festivities, uh, he gets smothered out. He gets sacrificed. There's a story here of a child, not a baby, but a young man who was to be sacrificed. The command comes to Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac. Verse 1 of chapter 22, it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thine son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. What a command. Notice the nature of this command. It's a test. The word tempt is not really a good translation here. It would be better translated test. Abraham, God doesn't tempt us. James says that let no man when he is tempted say that I'm tempted of God. For God uh, cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. God doesn't tempt us in the sense of solicitous to evil. Satan tempts us. But God tests us. God's purpose is to build us up. Satan's purpose is to tear us down. God proves us in order to improve us, in order to build us up and strengthen us. What a test. As his earthly love for his son is put in conflict with his love for God and obedience to God. Notice the time of this test. It came to pass after these things. There have been some nine great trials in Abraham's life prior to this. God doesn't give us the big tests to begin with. He gives us smaller trials and lets us build up our spiritual muscles and our faith before he places the ultimate ones on us. The content of this... Take now thy son, thine only son, whom thou lovest. Every phrase cutting deeper into the father's heart. How could God demand such a thing when elsewhere he condemns uh, murder, he condemns human sacrifice? How could God command such a thing? Don't you know that that uh, echoed through Abraham's mind and heart 
Abraham knew that it was the voice of the Lord. He'd heard that voice too many times to mistake it. And yet, how could God ask this? Well, actually, God wasn't really wanting the physical sacrifice. He wanted the sacrifice in the heart, ultimately. That's what he wanted, and that's what he was seeking to bring about. And the reason this was such a test wasn't only that this was loved son, his only son in a sense. He also had Ishmael, but his unique son by Sarah, his wife, through whom the covenant promises were to be fulfilled. God took Abraham out and he said, look at the stars, Abraham. You've wanted a son. I'm going to give you a son. And your descendants through that son are going to be more numerous than those stars. In Isaac shall your seed be called. And, uh, and yet here's that very son through whom those things are to be fulfilled. And God's saying, kill him. How can they be fulfilled? What a test. Uh, the earth is reeling unto Abraham. Well, he complies in verse 3. Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and clave the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him. Notice how promptly he obeyed. Early in the morning, he doesn't delay. The persons, there's Abraham, there's Isaac, they're two young men. They all go. Notice the period of time, verse 4. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. Three-day period. And the place... It was a mountain that God would indicate in the land of Moriah. The promise that Abraham makes to the two young men when they get there. Verse 5. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass. And I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. I and the lad will come again to you. Was that pious deceit? The preparation that he makes in verse 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. And then the prophecy unknown to him, Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Don't you know that just grabbed his heart? Daddy, we got everything but the lamb. We forgot a lamb. Where's the lamb? What would you say? Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. Oh, how heavy his heart must have been as he postpones telling the boy, you're the lamb. So they went, both of them together. And then there's the final preparation. They came to the place which God had told him of, and 
Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Can't you envision the scene? I bet the old man took stones from as far away as he could to just delay this thing. Finally, he gets the altar built and puts the wood on it. And he turns to Isaac and he says, Son, get on the wood. What, Daddy? Son, you're the lamb. Huh? I'm the lamb. What do you mean? Son, God told me to offer you as a burnt offering. Daddy, God wouldn't do that. Well, I know he wouldn't, but he did. Now, son, I know you could resist me. You're a young man. You're strong. But I'm going to ask you to get on the wood. And I'm going to tie you there so you can't crawl off. And I'm going to kill you. And then I'm going to burn you. So he got on the wood. His father bound him. And in verse 10, Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Suddenly there's the prohibition. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thy hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him, for I know that thou fearest God, now seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. The prohibition. The angel of the Lord. We've met him before. It's the Lord himself. Thou hast not withheld thy son from me. And... The provision. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided or it shall be seen. I guess that was sort of a motto for Abraham after that. He lived by that. The Lord will provide. And when God called you or me to do something that seems impossible and hard and tough, remember that motto. The Lord will provide. Well, as I'm sure come to your mind a parallel of another son of supernatural birth, who was sacrificed on a mountain by his father, even the Lord Jesus Christ, some 2,000 years later. Isn't it amazing, the parallel? Is it just a coincidence? Consider again the persons. There's the father, there's the son, and then there are the two young men. When Jesus died, there were two men on either side of him who went with him. The period of time, three days, 
For Abraham, Isaac was as good as dead for three days. There were three days during which Christ was dead. The preparation. Isaac carried the wood. The father carried the knife and the fire. Jesus carried his cross to Calvary, and the father carried the knife. And the father said to the knife, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my fellow. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. A prophecy in Zechariah 9 of the fact that God would call call his sword of justice that should be plunged into your breast and my breast to awaken against his son, the man who was his fellow. The place, a mountain that I will show you in the land of Moriah. You read about Moriah another time in Scripture, in Second Chronicles 3.1, which says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem in Mount Moriah. The land of Moriah was a narrow tract of land that was in the area of Jerusalem. And the temple built the temple on the hill of Moriah there. And God said, go to the land of Moriah and I will show you a mountain. And there you'll offer Isaac. Mount Calvary is right there. Don't you reckon it was Mount Calvary that God had Abraham build the altar on for Isaac? the very same mountain that Jesus would be offered on 2,000 years later. Of course, there is a point where the resemblance breaks down. When God got ready to offer his son, there was no voice that said, Stop! Or rather, he went through with it. Because there was no substitute that could be found for Jesus. There was none other good enough to pay the price of sin. He alone could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. Well might the sun in darkness hide and shut its glories in when Christ, the mighty maker, died for man, the creature's sin. What a picture. Abraham was the man that God designed who would feel like God felt in the grief and the anguish of Abraham's heart, you get some small picture of the anguish in God's heart as he offered his own son a burnt offering for you and for me. God spared not his own son. And you notice how Isaac cooperated. They went both together. God spared not his own son and Christ gave himself for us. Voluntarily, willingly, so ably pictured here. How did Abraham do that? Could you do that? Could you offer your child? Suppose we were to take the Krugs and ask them this morning, would you mind offering your babies as a sacrifice? How did Abraham do that? Where did he find the power and the strength to do that? To obey God when it was that costly? The book of Hebrews tells us, in Hebrews chapter 11, and uh, verse 17, By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, 
that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead. Notice what Abraham believed. During those three days, as he struggled with it, how in the world God has made me promises. He's promised that he would make a mighty nation through this son. And yet now he's telling me to kill this son. And uh, I don't understand. God is faithful. God keeps his promises. God is powerful. I know he won't lie. I know he won't go back on his promises. How can he do both? Well, he could raise my son from the dead, I guess. I've never seen him do that. But surely he could. That must be what he's going to do. By faith, Abraham offered his son, believing that he, God would raise him from the dead. And when he said to those two young men, I and the lad will go and worship and we will come again. It wasn't deceiving them. It was faith. He fully intended to put his son to death. He didn't anticipate that God would call and say, don't do it. But he did anticipate that God would raise him from the dead. Again, a picture of what ultimately happened when God raised his own son from the dead. By faith. And by faith, you and I, if we'll trust God, we can do the very hard and difficult and seemingly impossible things that God calls us to do. You're in a marriage, and it's tough. And you don't think you can hang in there. By faith, you can. You're in a very difficult situation at work. You don't think you can take the abuse. By faith, you can. You're a young person. And in school, you're ridiculed for your Christian stance. By faith, you can do this. You want to win uh, your family to Christ. It's tough. By faith, hang in there. You can accomplish the impossible. Well, we see uh, Abraham's power. Notice the consequences of all of this. In verse 12, God says, Now I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. Proof was given of his fear of God, of his true faith, of his true reverence for God in this tremendous act of obedience. Now, God knew already what was in Abraham's heart, that he knew his fear of the Lord. He knew that his faith was real. But now all the world knows it. Now what's in his heart has been brought out. And we see that the faith of Abraham was the kind of faith that makes a man different so that he obeys God. It brought Abraham in union with God. Or, or this faith was the product of that union with God's Spirit dwelling within Abraham. And uh, such faith... Such union uh, produces obedience. It makes a new creature out of us. So evidence is set forth that his faith is genuine. 
saving faith is trusting in Jesus Christ as my Savior, who was the one, the Lamb that God offered in my stead. But what's the evidence that my faith is saving faith, that my faith is real faith, not just make-believe? James gives uh, the case of Abraham as an illustration of saving faith. In James chapter 2, verse 20, James says, Wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead faith? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith Abraham believed God, and it was imputed for him for righteousness. Paul uses the case of Abraham when he's talking about our justification or our legal clearance, our declaration of not guilty before God. And he says, how was Abraham justified? And he quotes Genesis 15:6. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. It wasn't by his works, it was through faith. He said, we're justified the same way. We don't earn God's forgiveness. God's forgiveness is given to us as a free gift by grace through faith in Christ who died for our sins, not by works. James seems to contradict that. He says, wasn't Abraham justified by his works when he offered up Isaac? It seems that Paul and James are in conflict. But when we talked about this earlier in this series, we said, no, they're not fighting each other. They're like two soldiers in the same army standing fighting enemies coming from opposite directions. Paul is opposing the man who thinks that our good deeds merit God's forgiveness to any degree. He says, no, it's a gift by grace, not by works, through faith, trusting in Christ who died for our sins. James is opposing the man who says he has faith, but that faith hadn't resulted in works. That faith isn't a fruit-bearing faith. And he's saying that kind of faith won't save you. The faith that justifies is the faith that brings forth obedience to God's revealed will. And so he says, by this act of obedience, Abraham demonstrates that his faith is the kind of faith that bears fruit is saving faith, not dead faith. And the scriptures fulfilled, which said, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. What kind of faith is yours? Has your faith made a difference in your life? Is there a turning point, a change? Do you think different than you used to think? Are your goals and motives different than the worlds and the folks around you? Are your standards different? Are you marching by a different drumbeat? That's the evidence that your faith is genuine faith. Not only do we have the proof given of his fear of God, but we have the promises confirmed. In verse 16, God said, By myself have I sworn, says the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing, and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, 
that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. Those things promised were just a reiteration of what God had promised him before. Now they're confirmed. And uh, the point is they're connected now with Abraham's obedience because those promises could only be carried out if Abraham's faith is a genuine faith. They wouldn't be carried out if it was a dead faith that didn't bear fruit. And uh, now they're confirmed. Consider that pattern. What God called upon Abraham to do. Is anything like that demanded of us? Has God called us to sacrifice anyone or anything? Yes, says James. This pattern must be pre-produced in our lives in terms of our evidence of faith. That obedience, when it's costly, is required. That's the evidence that my faith is genuine. Yes, says Jesus. Not just the evidence of faith, but the entrance of faith. If any man will come after me, Luke 14, 25 following. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up the cross and follow me. Whoever comes after me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, sister, child, brother, cannot be my disciple. Whoever forsakes not all that he has cannot be my disciple. That's the entrance of faith. That's the start of the Christian life. What does that mean? Hate. Does Christ want me to hate my mother and father? Comparatively hate. Put him out front of them. Love them less than him. Christ has got to be out front of everyone else in my life if I'm going to follow him. And he's got to be out front of me Take up the cross and follow him. Die to the way I'd like to live my life. And he's got to be out front of everything, forsake all that I have. If I put uh, my occupation ahead of him or how I'd like to use my life, uh, money like the rich young ruler did, a relationship like Herod had, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Uh, Christ has to be out front. Here's a young person or an older person who's considering becoming a Christian. And there's a relationship in his life that's wrong. And Christ says, do you want to follow me? Break that relationship. That relationship goes on the altar. And it's hard, isn't it? Yes, something like this is required of us in the entrance of faith. No such thing as following Christ without him being first. Christ out front. But not only is, it, is there a parallel in the evidence of faith and the entrance of faith, there's a parallel in the enlargement of faith. Abraham had to make a commitment like that when he started walking with the Lord. God said, Abraham, leave your family, uh, leave your hometown, Go to a country, leave your security, go to a country, I'll show you. Abraham had to put Christ out front of security and family and go out. 
That was the entrance of faith. But now, here at the end of his life, he's saying, put, put, a, put Isaac on the altar. Here's the enlargement process. Uh, still, Christ out front, God out front of everyone else, digging deeper in the same place, in a sense. Uh, not only was this designed to prove to the world that his faith was a fruit-bearing faith, but it was designed to improve his faith, to stretch his faith, to perfect his faith. When I started in the Christian life, I had to put Christ out front, and it was a struggle. You know what the struggle was with me? When I graduated from high school, they put things under your picture in the, you know, in the glomerata or whatever it was, in the little student thing there. You know what they put under my picture? You know, they put most handsome, most likely to succeed, best liked. You know what they put under my picture? One of the boys. And they nailed me. One of the boys. I liked to follow the crowd. Didn't like to swim upstream. And when I struggled some ten years later with becoming a Christian, the issue was, are you willing to swim upstream? Are you willing to follow me when you have to break with the crowd? But then there were other times after that when something had to be put on the altar. What about you? Is there something that you need to put on the altar? An Isaac that's gotten out front of the Lord in your life? Maybe it's being popular. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a house that you want to build. Maybe it's your job and you're compromising with what you know God would have you to do in order to advance in that job. Here's a girl who wants to get married and Here's a young man who's not a Christian, but who's attracted to her, and she is a Christian. And the Scripture says that a Christian is only to marry a Christian. There's her Isaac. Isaac's got to go on the altar. Now, God may give Isaac back, but you don't know that God will give Isaac back. And don't use a rubber knife when you kill your Isaac. Well, we, we see the evidence of faith, the entrance of faith, the enlargement of faith. That's how we grow spiritually. And uh, finally, the enjoyment of faith. Think of how Isaac felt as he's going down that mountain. Boy, what a narrow escape. I mean, I was, I was on the wood. And a substitute was found for me. There was a staying of God's hand, and, and God provided a ram in the thicket. See, you're Isaac, if you're a Christian. You're going down the hill, you're on the other side, and Jehovah Jireh, God provided a ram in your stead, his own son. And you're set free, and there's therefore now no condemnation. You're the one that that sword should have awoken against and plunged in your breast and burnt at a burnt offering. But you're free. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And now the Lord is with you, and he's Jehovah Jireh, and he will provide. He'll give his resources. 
Be not anxious what you'll eat, what you'll wear. Your heavenly Father knows that you have need of such things. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added. Jehovah Jireh. We as a congregation, we tackle some big things. Woof. Jehovah Jireh. He is the God who will provide. He has provided. But have you partaken? You know, if you're a starving man and someone invites you into a feast and the banquet table is there, but you refuse to eat, you'll starve to death. God has provided. But have you partaken? Let us pray. <clears throat> As our hearts abound, uh, how does this apply to you? What about the proof of your faith, the evidence that it's a living faith? Is the trend of your life one of obedience when it's hard to obey? Or is your faith a make-believe faith, a say-so faith, but no real fruit? If you really are obeying and there's evidence, what about the enlargement? Is there some area of your life that you realize needs to be put on the altar? Some sacrifice that needs to be made. Maybe it's yourself willing to go to uh, some form of ministry, mission field, whatever it may be. And maybe it's funds that he would have you to give. Maybe it's a goal he would have you to give up or to take up. Maybe it's a relationship. Your Isaac needs to go on the altar and you need to put it to death. And if he sees fit to give it back, all right, do it today. Or maybe you're undergoing some trial and you've forgotten Jehovah Jireh. God will provide. Look to him. Ask him to be Jehovah Jireh to you in this situation. Maybe it's the entrance of faith. You've never eaten at the table. You've never partaken of the Lamb of God whom God provided as a substitute, his own son. Never really surrendered your will and put your trust in him. And that's where you need to start right now, today. Come to him if that's where you are right now. And in your heart, commit your life. You can pray in these words if you are sincere. Pray in your heart like this. Lord Jesus, I'm Isaac who should be on the wood, a burnt offering because of my sin. But Lord, you're Jehovah Jireh who provided your own son, a lamb, in my stead. Lord, I partake. Right now, I feast at that banquet. I trust Christ as my Savior. And I surrender to him out front of everyone else. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. Thank you. Amen.